another deep track from a mysterious artist. A beautiful and intimate piece from our guest. And a nonsensical song that's surprisingly meaningful. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school, Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. All right, folks, another themes and variation coming at you. We got a fun one for you today as we are breaking down songs that say so much. Whether it's in the production, composition, arrangement, or of course, the lyrics, we've got three very thought-provoking tracks. And joining me for this deep dive into some songs that speak volumes are my frequent co-host, Mahaya Lee, and singer-songwriter, Lada Lizcano. Hailing originally from Colombia, Lizcano combines her formal training as a jazz vocalist with her love of folk, pop, and contemporary classical music. And you can hear that on full display on her brand new album, Daughter of the Sea. This record is an internal look into Lizcano's life, addressing a wide range of topics from breaking generational traumas and grappling with immigrant identity to sexual desire and learning radical self-love. The album is a collection of songs sung in both English and Lizcano's native Spanish, along with a series of stunning instrumental interludes performed by the esteemed Daedalus Quartet. And folks, if you want to learn anything, and I mean anything in the world of music, you got to head to soundfly.com. We've got all kinds of incredible courses on arranging, production, harmony, our brand new course on film scoring. We also have courses from artists like Kimbra, RJD2, Calm Trues, Ryan Lott, Jalen, Kiefer, and more. And listeners of Themes and Variation can take 20% off a monthly or annual subscription to soundfly.com with the discount code PODCAST in all caps. Well, that is just about enough out of me. So without further ado, let's get in to the episode Songs that say so much. Uh, all right, folks, another themes and variation coming at you. Joined, as always, by Mahaya Lee. Mahaya, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Carter. How are you? I'm fantastic, and I'm very pleased to be joined by the incredible singer-songwriter, Lada Liscano. Lada, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, I, I was saving this for a little bit later, but Dana um, works as a part of your team uh, also connects us to Max Swan. Max is on the podcast, I think, over a year ago now. So, so good when she reached out. You got to get Laura on the show. I was like, absolutely. And checking out your music. We're so excited. So you have a new record, Daughter of the Sea, uh, coming out, which actually, by the time this airs, might already be out. Drops October 14th. Is that correct? Yes. Awesome. Without... You know, we're going to break down one of the tracks, which is fantastic. I want to save that surprise a little bit. Uh, But you (laughs) mind tell us a little bit about the record um, right off the top here? Yeah. So I wrote most of the songs on this record during the pandemic. Um, So they're all very personal, very internal looks um, into myself, because I feel like during the pandemic, we all had this... um, the, this like long prolonged period of time to like mm-hmm. really sit with ourselves and mm. um for me daughter of the sea was a, like the songs on that record were a very big part of that process i had wanted like a string quartet on it so that was kind of like germinating in my brain even in like 2020 when things were like very dark <laughs> mm-hmm. um and so yeah, and so the the record has like four songs that have string quartet arrangements and it also has like four interludes um what that are just the string quartet kind of like in the middle of some of the songs that are and they're played by Daedalus Quartet um which is a the resident quartet at the University of Pennsylvania. Um nice. and they sound so beautiful. <laughs> um it's it's my favorite part of the record honestly. So there was like this violin, like just sitting in like my grandma's house forever. And uh, I went to Colombia, like as a, I would go back and forth a lot mm-hmm. as a kid. And 
uh, one year I decided to like bring back this violin and I was like, I'm going to learn it. We like fixed it. Um, but I, I just never, I never learned myself either. So, um, I wanted to put this violin on, on like the imagery of that, out of the album because it felt like, um, yeah, yeah, like part of my creative inheritance in a way of like, Mm -hmm. yeah, just like the family, family lineage, which is kind of like a very big part of the record and just like made a lot of sense for the violin to make its appearance. (laughs) It's beautiful. And I'm sure, yeah, when we, we we discuss uh, your track, we'll get, I think even deeper into that. But as we're talking uh, songs that say so much, uh, were there any honorable mentions for either of you for this uh, episode? I'll, I'll kick it off with, with one. I didn't, totally seriously consider but when, when this came up i just searched i was like randomly songs that say so much of course elton john's sad songs say so much is the parenthetical oh, title i wasn't gonna do it it's <laughs> what's ironic though about that track is like it's a very happy and uplifting song telling you to listen to sad songs which is great You know, to be honest with you, you told me you wanted a theme that related to lyrics. <laughs> and I've been trying to shoehorn the song I chose into the show for like six months now. So <laughs> to be, yeah, to be completely candid, no, there was no other choice for me. After the fact, after the fact, I was like, okay, what's my backup in case I need it? Um, but no, this was, this was the one from the get go for me. And Laura, I, I mean, I'm I'm so stoked that we're going to be breaking down a track of your own. Were there any other artists or just tracks that, that just say so much to you as as a listener? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely a very lyric-driven artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think my biggest influences are Fiona Apple, for sure. Um, and there's specifically, every that song, Every Single Night, it's on the Idler's Wheel record. Made a meal for us both to choke on every single night to fight. With my friend. There's just so much, like so much in that lyric, and actually a big part, like that that specific song uh, was a huge inspiration in "Daughter of the Sea," um, and so yeah, I, I feel very connected to that um, to that song. Awesome, well, guys, I'm I'm fired up to listen to some music. So why don't we get into our first selection? of the episode. Here it is. These days get hard telling pause from pulses. But I made up my mind and give my roses to you. All over machine on a focal cane. But only one by one. Alright folks, we are listening to Belladonna from Armando Young. I, I'm i so excited uh, to talk about this tune, dig a little bit deeper. Armando's music uh, was hipped to us, and Mahay and I, through Max Swan, uh, the aforementioned, um, another favorite artist of ours. And he brought in Armando's Loved Ones. And I have been spinning that record like nonstop for the last year or so, ever since we got hip to it. And Armando doesn't have, like he has maybe three tracks out there in the world. Uh, it seems like his output has maybe slowed down a little bit. I hope he starts making music again. And um, because ugh, every track of his, I'm just completely blown away by. Did you guys get a chance to listen to this track um, and just any initial thoughts? Yeah, on I it? mean, yeah, my biggest, uh, so my biggest thing is a question. Yeah, please. For you, because lyrically, this song feels like there's moments when it's like super optimistic and it's lovely and stuff. The title, I associate Belladonna with like, gothic poison am i am i wrong on that <laughs> or, or well, does that change I mean, the meaning that, of these lyrics entirely I in know some about places i don't know belladonna is that it's a poisonous plant i think but out there's like fictional belladonnas that which i am not if either of you, you can shed like some light on that great yeah i think so but like i that's in the very like depths of my brain and that might not be the case at all but for some reason i feel like that um name is more ubiquitous than that I'm giving it credit for. All I know it as is a poisonous, like, 
plant. Yeah, <laughs> with like literary references. It yeah. says deadly nightshade on Google. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like if you read like like old timey <laughs> mysteries, like I love Agatha Christie. <laughs> deadly nightshade is often like or involved more often than you would expect, you know? Yeah. And it's just like in that context, some of these lines that sound really love like like make a toast. Mm-hmm. Has like sudden like is there hang a shingle, make a toast. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is there something sinister there or not? I'm not sure. I don't I don't think there's anything sinister. Watching the video and maybe we'll get into this a little bit more as we talk about the track, but I think that it is at least kind of the evolution of a relationship that eventually ends. Um, that's what I got from the visual. You have to watch like these videos, Armando's videos are incredible, as Max pointed out in Loved Ones. He has this giant mask of i believe his own face but like kind of distorted and it also has all these different interchangeable expressions that he puts on it it's it's so cool the thing that i love about armando just in and it's tough i think it's challenging as an artist like anonymity being kind of a gift in ways where he has leaned into doing things very much in a um a subtle way where it's like again he doesn't put a ton of music out everything he does put out those I think very thoughtful and he's in his video, but through a mask, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just such a weird thing that I, I actually think is quite, um, I, I like it. I just love it. I, there's not really much else to say about that, but, uh, uh, yeah, Laura, any, any thoughts on this track, uh, off the top of your head that, that kind of came to mind on a first pass? Yeah. I will say that I, the first thing that I watched was the music video. Mm, so yeah. I, I also had like that kind of visual attached to it and I was very intrigued by the by the head by the mask right from I think from what you're saying it looks like a lot of his content also include like includes this kind of mask distorted face that I was like very it's like off-putting a little bit right (laughs) (laughs) and yeah I think kind of like the then sort of relating that to the lyric of like the this relationship that is kind of ending but i think also seeing belladonna as like the woman in the relationship which i kind of had like a little bit of uh, feelings about because mm. like why is it always like the girl's fault that the relationship yeah. goes sour um and yeah. it was kind of like that's like the vibe that i was getting a little bit from the lyric was mm-hmm. that like this like kind of um very vintage Hollywood like woman who breaks my heart and now I have to hate her uh, <laughs> um, and write these like very sour songs about her. Yeah. <laughs> but then I also like in, t- in thinking a little bit more about the mask of thinking about maybe Belladonna maybe is actually death itself. Mm. Interesting. I think it's like something that I feel artists aren't very sometimes very in touch with like we process a lot of things through our art Mm -hmm. um and we say so much to the audience without understanding that it's actually something that we're processing from like our life or our trauma or whatever it may be and i think my impression of his very intentional wearing of the mask is that he is aware of that that he's kind of presenting this character that he's like super aware of Mm. and protecting like his true self if that makes sense. Makes total sense. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. It's fine. I, I totally, I love your breakdown of the lyrics. I think both of you being like songwriters, I mean, not being that I'm always like, ah, I can't parse the meaning of words. And so I won't try too much on this. I, I got the sense almost more optimism almost in it, particularly at the end of the track. I almost felt like, and maybe it was just the way that I interpreted the video was that he was the one that screwed up and he feels maybe just saddened by that and his own mistakes. But um, before we move on, so I did some Googling while you're we doing this and it, it's all ringing bells. So Belladonna is supposedly the poison at the end of Romeo and Juliet. Spoilers, but you've had a hundred, a couple hundred years at this point. Um, it was <laughs> named, I guess, for beautiful women in Renaissance Italy who would take it to enlarge their pupils and make them more luring like their eyes so i kind of feel like maybe belladonna could also be like the seductive quality not of a person but of like you know the the wonders of life or fame or youth or a million other things that people face every day where maybe this person that he had a relationship with is you know getting caught up in something and he so it's not necessarily like he's the good guy or she's the good guy or anything like that i hate that i just said guy and he and she but you know what i'm you know what i'm saying like it could be something more conceptual i don't know 
I'm never going to figure this one out. <laughs> like Armando, if, if you're out there, Armando, please drop us a line. We, we need to know, please. They, they, they right, it could just keys. be a name. That's the thing, too. Yeah, like, could, I'm too. only overthinking all these lines because of the name. <laughs> and but it's that's, just a pretty word. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we're here to do, though. Uh, we're we're here to overthink some stuff and and try and figure it out. So on the vocals and lyrics, though, I, like what I love about this track and and tracks that do this, the lyrics aren't abundantly clear on a listen. Which for me in production is like you kind of have to like it makes me look up the lyrics and then learn them and get to know them more intimately uh, than if I was just listening to them on a, on a first pass. I do like that. I think a lot of his stuff does it. it the width and the harmony of the vocals kind of help disguise that i think the hook the, and what i'm calling the hook that ghosts of ghosts have given up uh overrun the dreamers cup kind of section is is one moment where I, I i would really point to for that Just also like the R&B type phrasing on this track mixed with the balanced moment of just like locked in phrasing like we get in the outro, which I want to get to. Um, but like his verses are just like classic like R&B. And it's hard to want to All the world's pushing on a heart It's flesh by the pound in the end Moonlight all the time uh, this is where it gets a little heady and, and nerdy, but it's it's great. Um, if you're listening to this podcast or listening to this podcast or anything, but like nerdy music stuff, yeah, we're getting into harmony. Both, which one? We're, we're okay, getting cool. into both. So, um, <laughs> bass and harmony. First, just an awesome example of the bass changing a little bit and not changing the vibe of of uh the track really and the vibe of the melody the context of the the melodic content so there's this moment where it's the same vocal line same changes but the bass changes from playing the root So when you talk about the bass changing, like to me, it just sounds like a, a full-on reharm. But you specifically said the bass isn't playing the roots anymore. As a bass player, do you think of yourself as still playing the same chords in those situations? Yes, just, you do. Yep. It yep. doesn't just feel like an entirely new chord progression to you. Yeah, I don't think I've ever thought of it differently. Because one, as a bass player, I don't think you want to feel left behind anyway. Because like, like piano players are playing different chords, guitars play different chords, like you are still a part of that uh, harmonic context, whether you're playing the root third, fifth, seventh, even ninth, even like. Well, that's what I'm saying. You're not just part of it. You're defining it. Like as a pianist, when you, when you as the bass player play something different, I think it totally recolors what I'm playing. Yeah. Just interesting. Respect that. Just wanting your perspective. I I don't know. (laughs) I think it does recolor, but uh, I would still uh, absolutely think of it as being part of the chord. I do. So, some of my favorite, my favorite harmony. And I think like Armando's music is always so full of like really rich chords, but stuff that's really attainable that you can put in your own music and traditional harmony. I think, and and Laura, I think you have this similar experience. When I was reading the EPK, I was like so stoked about this, but I think Mahay and I have this as well, but going to jazz school and then like learning all this stuff and then maybe putting it aside, which I want to talk to you about for sure. Um, But these chords, this moment in the hook, from our uh from this track is just I'll have to play it and then I'll I'll break down what's going on there a little bit. There are these incredible, incredibly rich chords. For anybody looking to play them, you've got G flat, major seven. The G minor seven flat five, which all you're doing there is bringing the root up a half step, and you've got the same chord that you just played, so sick. Um, and then you have a two five back to G flat major seven, it's A flat uh, minor seven to D flat seven. Then you get this very almost out sounding B major seven, uh, adding a dose of color to this progression to the F seven 
followed by again that two five one in G flat major to round things out. The really cool thing about this, so he uses the the lyric "Ghosts of Ghosts have given up, overrun uh, the Dreamers Cup," and then he uses the same changes on the outro, and we get the new lyric "Uh huh, baby, uh huh, baby, you stayed on my mind, don't you, baby, lose your faith." It was hard to find. I gotta play this outro together because. I, I've got it on repeat. I cannot stop listening to this. It's just so good. so good uh and i know this is like i haven't really talked about it says so much and these songs say so much it's old theme of this episode but i think that like it says a lot in the production says a lot in the lyrics it says a lot in the use of space i mean it says a lot in the video i i don't have a meaning for any of it i just know that it's saying a lot but i'm ready to get into our next selection which i'm so stoked to get into you guys ready Shall yeah. we get into it? Here we go. What do we have the pleasure of listening to? This is called Blood is Thicker Than Water. Yeah. This is where I'm, I'm clapping a little bit from your upcoming release, Daughter of the Sea. I'm so stoked to talk to you about this track. I got questions and, and notes and all kinds of things that, that stood out to me in this incredible track. But anything that you want to share right off the top? Um, I will say this is the, the keystone track. It's like the one that holds it all together. And... Um, I call this my angsty Fiona Apple song. <laughs> yeah, it's just probably the song I'm the most proud of. And the the title of the record comes from the hook as well, right? So awesome um, little through line there. I Before I forget to ask you this, because I've been meaning to, you mentioned, um, again, I think in the, in the EPK, that your first project really was like you showcasing your jazz chops a little bit, right? And now your subsequent works, you've kind of let go of that. One, where did you go to school? Where did you study? I went to Temple University. I'm a graduate right of the jazz program. What were some of the things that led you to still keep that um, that experience, but like kind of feeling like you needed to shed some of it as well? Um, that's a loaded question and, and a lot, but um, your I appreciate there? that question. I think the parts that I'm keeping is definitely like the American songbook tradition, mm. um, like this long history of composers and lyricists like specifically songwriters i think um of course like i love musicals i love um the old like the really old stuff and some of the newer stuff um as well but i just i think in general i'm just i like the part that i feel the most connected to is the songwriting i think um the stuff that i want to shed or like to like get rid of um is that i think you know jazz school is like it's not an easy place for a woman mm. it's like a very it's a culture that is very um i want to like say this delicately but also mm -hmm. at the same time not really you definitely don't there, have to you say don't it have delicately to. yeah say it there's a lot of like misogyny you know and i yeah. think that's like the short answer to that is like 
for women in that industry specifically, there's like mm-hmm. just like so much sexism that you have to like kind of deal with on a day by day basis. Like as mm-hmm. a student, it was a part of my daily life. Um, and something that I was kind of basically told that like you just have to de- learn how to deal with it. And it's like it was yeah. put kind of like on women's responsibility to to solve the problem and to also like deal with it at the same time that I was just like at some point I was just like I can't do this and I think it also just made it like this whole idea of like you got to be really good at bebop and you got to improvise and (laughs) and you have to like have amazing chops at these like very specific things that like audiences aren't always connected to (laughs) and that actually sometimes alienates the audience from the music I just that's not the path that I wanted to to continue going and I was spending all this time trying to shed trying to like learn yep. bebop and like that's not that's not who I am you know and and it's t- completely fine for folks who like who feel connected to that but I felt more drawn to a community that was like inclusive of women that like mm-hmm. acknowledged that there are queer people in the world and that mm-hmm. um was open to playing songs just for the sake of playing a song and not getting to the solo moment um Right, and to like really right. interpreting a, a song to its full potential, like as as it was written, actually. The pieces that I'm keeping are are actually the tradition of I think a lot of women, which is the the songwriting aspect and like the the badassery of of being a a, a female band leader and your own uh producer and your own everything, right? It's like like a lot of female jazz musicians like were trailblazers in mm-hmm. that way like Betty Carter was the first person to produce an independent record like mm-hmm. she was the person who like uh pioneered college tours like she figured all of that shit out and nobody talks about that you know and i yeah. think it's um anyway sorry no 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 we went to jazz school too so i you know yeah i think the, our ratio was 3 to 1 the year that i started of, of men to women yeah I'm not a vocalist, and the assumption was always that you were if you're a woman, and that was like a double slam. Because yeah. I was like, first of all, you're sexist for making that assumption about me. Second of all, I wish I was a good singer, so thanks for bringing that <laughs> up, you know? But yeah, I mean, you know, like, artists like Ella Fitzgerald and um, Billie Holiday, they also just, like, they sang the song, and it was about the song. It wasn't, like, modern academic jazz now where it's like, how do I make this song about me? You know? yeah, yeah. So I think it's beautiful it- you're carrying on that side of things. It uh, like, yeah, just, I mean, the thought of like, we better get used to it. Misogyny happens here because it happens in the real music world. It's just such a shitty, vicious cycle. Like it doesn't need to be like either of those things in the music business or at school. So yeah, I don't know if it's gotten better. I definitely, that was definitely, we, you know, we went to Berkeley and that was there. It was, it's in every music school, I think for sure. And it sucks. Like I don't have much to add to that. I, you just hope that there's some kind of progress. And I think that the reason I'm always careful about talking about it is because I I fully understand that it's like an African American tradition that it needs to be understood and honored and respected for the monumentalness of mm-hmm. its existence in this country. You know what I mean? And. I, I think another caveat I have with it all is that like these programs are prim- like the students are primarily white. Mm-hmm. The faculty members are primarily white. There's like a question that rose up for me after I graduated was like, huh? I mean, not that Temple specifically, like there are uh, obviously like black musicians who, who are very much connected to the tradition, but I was seeing in other programs and also within the faculty at Temple, like, like what is the purpose here (laughs) and are we are we actually serving the music and this tradition and the way that it's that it should be served and who are we leaving out of the history because we have this academic thing so ingrained in it Mm -hmm. absolutely academics and art are such a weird thing because i mean to an extent even like classical music has that issue right you put something in a school and it's hard to say it's the same thing like it's beautiful people want to study it but it does take some of the I don't know. And... It takes the art out of it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, yeah. I do want to make sure, like, because I, yes. in speaking of art, though, <laughs> no, just like, because I, I think it's a great transition, honestly, into putting the art back into to music. Like, let's talk to the artist here about, about their track, because I am very stoked. I think right off the top, though, the waves, 
Um, I love found sounds in in music, and there, there's plenty in in this track because it, it's such a um, inviting sound. You know, it's like come listen to this track. There's something in it really that 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 draws you in. So the waves. Do you mind shedding a little light on where that sound is from? Uh, is it a sample you found, or is it one that you went out and recorded yourself? Oh, it's a sample. Cool. It's still good. <laughs> I wish though, I could so. say that like <laughs> I took my equipment out to the ocean and I very purposefully. Yeah. No, I. Uh, it's still it's good. <laughs> it's a good sample. It's treated beautifully. Um, so I, I love that. There's also um. It's like the creaking of a door almost in a spot. Does you know? Does that is that sample? To, I'm guessing, but do you know what I'm talking about in the? Yeah, it's yeah. The, the piano that was in the studio is right. Like the pedals, right? Oh wow, that's so much better. Yeah, I was like Silas, just creak for like the whole track. We'll just cut out like whatever doesn't work. But I just love that sound so much. Yes, I love when that stuff gets left intentionally. Like it's so cool. Like the clacking of. Uh, the pads of a saxophone or something or like you hear the air of the pads come off the piano but you did the whole record in the same studio i'm guessing and so like maybe there was just that experience the first time the piano was played was like this is wild that it has this this sound to it so i think that's really special that um where where was the uh, record recorded it's a studio called um trico mine recording um in philadelphia it's yeah. uh, michael cummings studio he used to work at Rittenhouse Soundworks. I think he still works there, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I recorded my first two projects at Rittenhouse Soundworks with Michael. And then when Michael opened up his studio, it just made sense for us to continue working together. Nice. I mean, everybody that plays on this track is incredible, but I have to shout out the drummer a little bit here because... My the, God. Yeah, dude. The, one of the playing pocket, everything is is incredible. It's difficult to be the drummer sometimes in these tracks that have such rich orchestration and arrangements. Like where do I find my place uses mallets and it's such an awesome use of that. I'm guessing they're mallets. If you, if there's something else at place, I want to play that example. That whole movement is so so beautiful, but the mallets, it, just a big fan of that. <laughs> so, so who's the drummer? Who's who's the drummer on this? Um, so that's Gustin Rudolph. He's like my favorite drummer. Yeah, I've worked with Gustin for a while now, and um, I think we have a very amazing musical relationship. Mm-hmm. He's just he start he like understands exactly what I need, and um, yeah, it's just so great to work with him. He's incredibly talented. It's awesome. I also. Um, as a bass player recognizing dope bass players, uh, the chords at the beginning is also a big chord at the end, which is so sick. But uh, bass chords, I think, have a, a way of drawing a listener in. So up the front, you've got the waves and the chords together. It's awesome. Who is playing bass on this record? Because that's fantastic playing all the way through. So it's Joe Plowman, and he um, he also plays bass for Carsey Blanton. He's pretty sick. He's pretty amazing. Yeah, there's there's so much on this track. I, it's hard for me to go like, okay, what what does this song mean? This is what I think, because you're the artist and you're the songwriter, so I'm not going to do that. Yeah, you have the benefit um, of having Laura here, so why don't yeah. you just ask her what the song is? Yeah, are, well, I mean... <laughs> one, one, around it there. <laughs> what is the song about? Unless, you know, and sometimes that's a very personal thing. That yeah, we, if you we don't, don't want to tell us, it's again. fine too. But just that, yeah, what, uh, I guess, in, in, a, in the spirit of the theme, um, yeah, the song says so much. What does this song say? Yeah, you know, I think so. We've talked about kind of how this record was like my internal um, processing of a lot of things. And um, I think the song specifically was me asking like the world, like why I get pigeonholed into these like tiny little boxes. Like I, I, a little bit of what we were talking about before, like as a woman, as a Latina, like I I just live by different rules in this world. Um, and that has a lot to do with how specifically like white America sees people like me. And so that question is like, what's it going to take for you to see me for who I really am is really actually about that. And I mean, it also is layered with like, I think 
we struggle to be ourselves around the people that we love the most or maybe our families. And mm. part of that, that lyric also has some of those like kind of more personal tones as well of like, it's not always easy to be yourself and it's not, yeah, it's not always safe to be yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think what the pandemic allowed me to do was to finally be on my own and feel safe being myself because I didn't have to answer to anybody else. I could just be alone uh, with my partner and that was it, you know, like I didn't have to put on this mask or like pretend or do any of those things. So um, that this is like a little bit of like my liberation song. Uh, are there any specific moments that you want to call out in this track, be they for performance or sound design or the lyrics themselves? Just any moments that you're like, we would like. Can to I can I ask that yeah, in, please. A slightly, in a slightly less in a better like, way? Yeah. Way. Please. <laughs> um, were there any lyrics that you are there any lines in this song that you like on an emotional level maybe connect with so intensely every time you sing them that they're. That like it, it changes something about the way you perform them where like you have to bring something new to it or you have to shut off part of your brain or something like that. Yeah. You know, I think like when I first started performing the song, yes, 100%. It was like hard for me to get through it. Mm. Um, mm. But I think part of being an artist, right, is like there's like who you are as a person and then it's who you are as an artist. And those two things can be different. I definitely had to find the character <laughs> within the song, but I will say that like the very end of the song, the last lyrics, like I was born to be free. You were born to be free. We're all born to be free. Um, it's a moment that when I first played it live in front of people after the pandemic, it was, there were people crying mm. and I, I didn't realize that, because I had done the work of <laughs> allowing myself that freedom that in a, in this little way, I could also allow other people, I could give people permission to feel free as well. And um, that first time that we played the song in front of people was very special for that reason. Let's move on to our last selection of the episode. You're the cold maze, say one prison call in Anson and All right. All right, Maya. What do we have the pleasure of listening to? I have to pronounce this very long, made up, all words are made up by someone at some point, but this one was intentionally made up to be like a fictional language situation. Um, we're listening uh. to Prison colon and Sanon Cusol. I feel like that's as much as I can expect from myself. Oh, I think you did much um, better with that than I thought you were going to. That's thank pretty you. good. <laughs> by uh, Adriano Celentano, who is um, an Italian pop star who's had a, a long and illustrious career, but the 70s were definitely a big moment for him which is when this song came about. Had you heard this before? Because it has been all over social media lately, again. I've not. Why is it all over social media? It surfaces every few years. <laughs> um, I mean, I just gave it away a little bit. Did you recognize the language at all in this song? What did it well, sound like, if anything? Italian? <laughs> well, his name's Italian. Yeah, so... For a second, I thought it was Portuguese. And mm -hmm. then I was like, is this Italian? Like, I went Spanish, Portuguese? What is it? <laughs> this is a song written by an Italian artist, um, sort of as comment, not sort of, as commentary on um, how, A, we just don't communicate with each other. People don't communicate with each other well sometimes. And B, so much of the world is so fascinated by anything that sounds American. <laughs> or looks American or seems American 
that he decided to put out a song that sounded kind of like how American English sounds to non-English wow. speakers, mm. but said nothing. That's and sick. Sure enough, it became a, not. It didn't instantly become a hit. A couple of years went by, and then he performed it again, but this time on TV, and it became a hit like across Europe. And I think it made it to like number eighty-six in the U.S. Even pre-internet, which is amazing. <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't mean anything, and in a lot of ways, I think that's why it means everything. <laughs> you know, like it says a lot without actually saying anything real, yeah. other than the word "all right." which is the only real word in the entire song. His nickname was Il Molligetto, I think, uh, the flexible one, because of his dance moves. Yeah, he's an amazing Sick dancer. Sick nickname, It's like a really tall one. Elvis, kind um, of, you know? But that, like... You're, you always are able to land the plane somehow. I'm always like uncertain how it's going to get done. Me, yeah. uh, just, just to make, yeah. <laughs> just, just to, to make talking to me interesting. interesting. <laughs> um, but no, like that. Yeah, that that's awesome. I mean, fantastic pick. So well done. It just blows my mind because you don't think about like how do people who don't speak a language hear that language? You know. Um, I don't know. And I'm saying that as an English speaker who has like tiny little bits of a few different languages and that's Mm -hmm. it. But English is, we are very ethnocentric. And in some ways, I think that the media has been a big part of that problem. You know, like I I even looked into how many non-English language songs have made it to the top 10 Mm. of the Billboard Hot 100 since it came about in the 50s. Guess how many have made it to the top 10 that weren't English language? Single digits, I'm guessing. Like, yeah, I can't even... It's more than single digits, but there have only been 20, as far as I know, Mm. non-English language to get to the top 10. And for context, there's been over 1,100 different songs that have claimed that number one spot since the chart started. Yeah, yeah, wow. So like thousands of songs have been in the top 10. 20 of them were English language. Wow. A lot of them are BTS. <laughs> That's so interesting. I also feel like Bad Bunny recently made it up there, right? He was like, what was he, the most grossing touring artist? Yeah, by a lot year, so probably. this last year too. Yeah, I think I think that's very interesting and definitely something that I, I think a lot about, like as someone who makes music in both English and right. Spanish. You know, people people always want to tell you their opinions, but mm. um, I've had a lot of people tell me, well, you shouldn't do songs in Spanish because that's going to be confusing or and then like the total opposite end of the spectrum is like, well, why are you singing in English? Your stuff in, be- in Spanish is so mm. beautiful. There's like this idea of like it has to be extremes, right? One or the other. Um, and there's like no room for the fluidity of life, which I think is where actually most Americans live because literally all of us are immigrants <laughs> unless you're a native american then you're you know your history is uh not native to north america so yeah i don't know when i listened to this song i was like in me first of all immediately in love right <laughs> so energetic so much fun and then i looked some stuff up about about him and he was like also an actor yeah and so was his wife and he like was in La, La Dolce Vita, which I was like, Whoa. he was a big deal. He was like, or he still is. He like, they're currently making an animated, I think it's animated TV show starring him where it's like, it's loosely based on him, I think. But also he's like an action hero or something. So it's like, he's still a big deal. We just in the shoes now, a whole building scene, then a whole red maybe get the color boss dying. It brings to mind even people like Max Martin. You know, like, the lyrics in boy band songs are not profound most of the time. And we get sucked in because of how those syllables sound together as much as mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, Does it fit the melody perfectly? Exactly. And then, like, we got to find the right word and, yeah. Where the stresses fall, like, the balance of consonants and vowels. Like, researching this song took me down a rabbit hole into the world of linguistics that I am not qualified or prepared <laughs> to dive down. But Italian is um, a syllable-timed language, which means every syllable has more or less the same duration and weight, mm. whereas English 
is um, a stress-timed language, which gives it a little more variety and in some ways makes it feel more rhythmic. It captures the rhythmic feel of it really, really, really well, even though the words don't make sense. But the consonants being thrown in there, the short vowels, it sounds like English. The groove is quite unique, too, I think, in that. Yeah. Well, it's pretty straight, like four on the floor. But I think the snare, like where the one is, can be hard to kind of decipher. Mm -hmm. I think the snare is hitting right on one at the beginning of each beat, and then the horns are syncopated. So that's just a short drum loop. I can't remember exactly how long it is, but he just started with a drum loop. He decided he didn't want to write down any of the lyrics ahead of time because why would you? They're not real. If they're made up, yeah. <laughs> so well, he improvised that. That's still I'm sure challenging. He did multiple takes, but... Yeah, but that's still even like super. Ch like I can imagine I myself trying to do that, just coming up with, even though it's made up sounds. Yeah. Making them sound unique and original as you go throughout the, the And track, mimicking another like, language that isn't your first language. Makes, yeah, I mean, that this, uh, I'm learning amazing. a lot on this one and through this track. That's uh, a little surprise. You got to credit that's his awesome. phrasing though, yeah? Like that's amazing vocal yeah, phrasing do. for improvising it. A hundred percent. I wonder yeah. if that was like, there's this like exercise in, in clowning. <laughs> We're learning a lot about yeah, you Yeah, we got to hear more about this, this, <laughs> this as well. Where you like, that's exactly the exercise that you do is like you pretend to speak in a different language. Huh. Um, it's like part, I think part of like the Lecoq Technique School, that French school of like physical theater. Interesting. Mm. Um, I had a brief stint in the pandemic yeah. where I was like, I'm going to be a clown for a second. That's amazing. That's the, everybody picked up like hobbies and that's the best one. That is a good one. Pandemic. I like learned that's how to so knit. Good. Clowning's way cooler. I didn't learn how to do anything different. <laughs> I'm regretting it, not using that time more effectively now, but that is awesome. Um, but like, that's a good point too. Like, I wonder if his background being like more of an actor and like mm -hmm. very, very pop focused at times, if that gave him the ability to come up with this, that... In a way that other singers might not have been able to do, you know? Yeah, it really, like, now that we're talking about it, it really does feel like that exercise. That's so interesting. I'm going to have to learn more about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he started with that loop. He improvised some vocals. Through that improvisation, he gave the song a full form. And then they brought in um, the orchestra and did arrangements. So all those horns and stuff were added after the fact. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, anything else you want? I mean, awesome pick for starters. Well done. <laughs> hey, thanks. Um, that is like, like, is, yeah, I mean, like, it's such a diff, like, tricky. Look, the first two songs we have sound incredible and beautiful. This song sounds great too, but I think there's a, there's a gap uh, in just the, the performances. But the, I mean, this track's awesome. I wasn't expecting to learn so much on it, is what I'm trying to say. So, gotcha. Well done. I mean, I, I just think that it says a lot about music and lyric writing in general and yeah you know like myself as a lyricist who wanted to be a poet till i was 16 years old and decided that's not a job so i'm gonna go to music school <laughs> um i want all lyrics to be poetry by themselves on a sheet of paper mm -hmm. in addition to working in a song but this really made me think a lot about you know every time somebody hears a song they get to they have the freedom to interpret it however they want and some of the associations that you have with instruments or with words or syllables or whatever mm -hmm. some of those expectations mm -hmm. color your experience you kind of get a meaning out of this even though it doesn't mean anything <laughs> yeah and i think it's like you know it's not it's not about the quality of the the track it's not about um yeah, it, it again, like it serves its purpose so beautifully, like and it's like crafted so well in that way, like it has served its purpose that I feel like it like, yeah, the, the arrangements don't need to be perfect. Like right. <laughs> it doesn't need to be perfectly in tune. It doesn't need like what is perfect production anyway? Like whatever. Fuck that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it naturally has that vintage thing that I think people are faking so much. now. <laughs> it's just in there. <laughs> I think like something that I resent a little bit so much as a like a like an artist, a songwriter right now is like this idea that like songwriting needs to be 
like these extremely like clean productions Mm -hmm. like we don't it has to almost sound like you're in a spaceship like you have (laughs) to be melodyned and all this stuff that's also like where I I think I also retained my jazz school is like I really miss the sound of a room I really miss like the ambient of it all too like the squeak of the pedal in your track yeah it's like that like there there's just such an authenticity and intimacy that I think we need as listeners every Mm -hmm. now and then Otherwise, it's so sterile. Um, the one moment I just want to point out on this, Carter, before we wrap things up is, yeah. so his wife makes an appearance. I think it's around 1.35. And, oh, she just, like, it's this tiny little moment, but somehow her performance is amazing to me on this. It's so good. Um, did you guys watch the video, by the way? I know yeah. I just in the chat. Watch the video. It's like a school room setup, and everybody's wearing very colorful clothes, and he's pretending to give language lessons. It's great. I eyes mine senseless, and he goes so though with basil. Eyes. Reason calling us not to talk. All right. Well, I should not sleep in that again on the scene. Well, it's now time for my favorite part of the episode. Uh, Lauda, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this one. And thanks so much for bringing your track in. I mean, that was such a joy to break it down with you. Your brand new record, Daughter of the Sea, coming out October 14th, um, which yeah, by the time people are listening to this, it might already be out. So as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, you haven't listened to the record already, go check it out. I'm going to guess it's available everywhere. Yes. Uh, awesome. Fantastic. Uh, but anything else you'd like to highlight? Any shows coming up? Any, um, you know, your website, your socials, anything you want to share? The floor is yours. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, well, we have a release show in New York City on October 23rd at Groove um, in the Village. It's free. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, awesome. Uh, come out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then in Philly, we also have a release show on November 12th at City Winery. Um, so that's going to be really great. Shout out to City Winery for uh, always having my back. Uh, my socials, uh, Laura Liscano Music, at Laura Liscano Music. We're also in, in New York City again on November 11th at Rockwood Music Hall. So Nice. Uh, Which uh, Rockwood? Stage three. Awesome. Excellent. Love stage three. That's the downstairs. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, it's going to be a, a great time. Um we're playing trio format that night, so it'll be a little different. So excited. And that's going to do it for this episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. You can listen to every song mentioned on this episode by checking out the Spotify playlist in our show notes. Be sure to listen to the brand new record from Lada Liscano, Daughter of the Sea, available everywhere now. And of course, check out soundfly.com for all of your music learning needs. Remember to use that discount code PODCAST in all caps to take 20% off a monthly or annual subscription. And we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme. 